welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a show all about everything unexplained, dark, and weird in the world. Today on the show is going to be part one on demonology, where we go over the origins of demonology. And I'm going to be covering the topic from a non-dogmatic perspective. So if there's anyone who's listening who's uh, into theology or orthodox of any Christian faith, any of the various ones, I'm not going to be coming from a place where that's going to be followed. It's just going to be kind of from an exterior point of view, completely non-dogmatic and objective as I'm possibly capable of being objective about it, as dispassionate as I can be. But I'm going to make mistakes. I always do. And also, FYI, just a warning, don't mess with any of this stuff. It doesn't matter if demons are real or demons aren't real because people have and still do go insane from this kind of stuff. So just, you know, don't mess with things you don't understand. In any case, let's hop right into it, shall we? I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. This is, this is the way. This is the way. These, these entities, they would congregate. People ask you, do you believe in demons? Most usually have a polarized response going in one way or the other. And most wouldn't even take into account just how abstract the possible responses to that question truly are. Or even if belief is a valid thing to be asking as part of the question in the first place. Blunt literalism is the way that many people would look at it unable to break from the dogmatic reality tunnels indoctrinated into them from birth in many modern societies. But the opposite, blind theological superstition, too, renders a response instinctually one-dimensional. Such shallow existences are overshadowed by the more nuanced-minded person who understands humanity is Seemingly a delusionally ignorant species that knows next to nothing concerning the true nature of reality. But at the same time, even people not trapped within narrow reality tunnels can get pretty wishy-washy on the subject, with any seriousness on the topic of demons varying in degree greatly. I'm not here to tell you what is or what is not, but I will tell you this. Things are rarely, if ever, what they seem at face value. And as one of the most famous and notorious paradigm shifters from history once said, the truth is inside and out, and you've got reality on backwards. Let's look into what our ancestors thought about demonology and where it came from, the origins of demonology. Demonology actually goes back to the very first histories documented by humanity. 
It has been with us this whole time. In truth, trying to understand demonology is to enter a world of the ineffable and paradox. And it really just comes down to an understanding of the topic, not the reality of the subject, which cannot be comprehended rationally. I myself have studied demonology. I mentioned it in an episode. I think it is the Nephilim part 10 episode, but it might also be the shadow person episode, the shadow people lore episode. I don't remember exactly, but um, in the discord, somebody said, okay, so if you know demonology, you should probably do some episodes on demonology. So here we are. And the reason why I know a decent amount about demonology is because when I was pretty young and naive, like I was, we're talking not teenager, but early adolescence, you know, around there at that age, I actually got in trouble for researching demonology by the religious people in my life. Like they caught me and didn't, and weren't too happy about it. Didn't stop me though. I've been a lifelong rebel. And I was always going to do what I was going to do. Especially since everybody seems so ignorant around me of like going deeper into things. I have never been satisfied with just surface knowledge my whole life. And just as I explained in that episode, it was because I got my hands on a book called The Art of War by Sun Tzu. And in it, he says, you basically have to know your enemy as good as yourself if you're ever really going to get anywhere and have victories, you know? And with all these religious people around me in my life, shying away from everything demonic and like sticking their heads in the sand, I actually, after reading that book, concluded that they were putting themselves in danger doing that. And me being naive, obviously, I thought that I could, could protect them and help them if I knew it because I'm the only one who actually cared about expanding my knowledge outside of the bubble the only one who had read The Art of War or kind of understood these kinds of ways of thinking. So I took it upon myself to figure it out and protect people in my life. I mean, I did grow out of this childish way of thinking to see the bigger picture and, you know, we all grow up and mature, but I had quite the imagination. My intentions were good and I became pretty knowledgeable about demonology at a young age. And as I grew up and got older, obviously, my views on the topic changed, but my fascination and interest on such things has never gone away. In fact, my interest in all the mysteries and the unexplained, the paranormal, everything, even if, like, you know me, I don't take it literally all the time. I'm a storyteller. And I know I don't really share much about myself usually, so this is weird. But one of the reasons that inspired me one of just one of the reasons that inspired me to make this podcast was because I was annoyed by all the people who always um, did it, like said everything and told these, talked about these topics in ways that were absolute. They were the absolutist and they were like, oh, I have this truth and that truth that annoyed me. And I saw how it could make a lot of people paranoid and send other people off in these wrong directions that led nowhere. But the information itself, I love. I have more of an expansive view of everything. That's my style. My interest in the mysteries, the unexplained, the paranormal has only gotten stronger as I got older. And actually, it's only my life is only seems like it's on track and doing good when I don't deny this part of myself. Hence, I, oh, I have a podcast covering these topics. I do not deny myself the calling that I have, you could say, of uh, 
all aspects of the ineffable. So I plan to have a pretty in-depth series on demonology that I will come back time to time that I will, you know, over an extended period of time, I'm not going to have it in order like I originally did with the Nephilim series. And so if this stuff interests you, you're in for a treat because there is a lot to cover. And unique demonology is actually found in literally every single culture throughout human history across the planet. So enough about me. Let's dive deep into the origins of demonology. Here's a quote from the Bible that most religious people ignore. That is quoting God itself from Isaiah 45.7. Quote, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. This verse greatly intrigued me when I was younger and kind of changes the perspective that some people should have on demons if they're really following the scriptures, which most don't, sadly. One of the oldest pieces of demonology that we have found um, in archaeology has been found in ancient Mesopotamia, the incantation bowl. And these bowls are still used today in various forms of um, the more archaic ways that religions were practiced, as well as occultists, particularly in ancestor-type magical work and whatnot, that the ancient clay incantation bowls reveal that to the people of Mesopotamia. Demons were very real in day-to-day -day life. And also, one could use tools to make life more bearable to coexist with them. And these incantation bowls also reveal something else that's pretty consistent across all demonology, that these entities need something to inhabit in some way in order to make their presence or power known into our plane of reality. And this can be a variety of different things. The incantation bowl just happens to be one of the earliest that we know of. In demonology, these things that can be used that the demons can inhabit can even be something simple like incense smoke or how you visualize them in your imagination gives them a form to take. But there's other tons of stuff. There's medallions, there's plaques, there's... Um, rings, sigils, you name it. We'll go over a bunch of them eventually over time, but the theme is that it, they always need something to inhabit, to anchor themselves into reality. Demons don't exist the way that we exist. They are between heaven and between earth, and they exist in a way that's completely alien to us. These incantation bowls found in Mesopotamia were used to bind specific demons to limit their influence in the owner's life or to use their terrible power for good and for protection against other demons the particular demon bound to the bull didn't get along with anyway. People who made incantation bulls saw them as a vital tool for daily life, just like their clothes, farming tools, or whatever. It was just a natural and normal aspect of existence. As Ed Simon says, Demons fundamentally express a basic truth. Life is frequently defined by pain. Life is often marked by evil. Most of the demons from incantation bowls that have been found are indigenous to the local area that they were found. They weren't just entities from ancient Babylon and Sumerian religion. 
Many have demonic influences from various origins, such as Zoroastrianism, Christianity, Judaism, or even Gnostic imagery. Because incantation bowls are not only found from the earliest civilizations, but are also found from cultures well into the common era and beyond. I mean, like I said, they're still used today. Supposedly, there is a strict ban on magic in Judaism, but Judaism is knee-deep in magic historically. To ban magic was to outlaw it to the plebs, to the normal people, to the peasants, which gave the elite and the spiritual influencers over the civilization sole exclusivity on magic. And it is through Babylon and the Hebrews that we get the names of some of the most ancient demons, such as Asmodai, the king of demons probably known better as Asmodeus in the West. In the ancient Hebrews, utilized magic to contain demons or even make use of their power for good. Look at the Talmud. Look at um, the stories about King Solomon used demons to build the first temple. But even though magic was outlawed to normal people, incantation bowls were seen as an exception to the rule and a necessity of life. We find many classic Hebrew demons on bowls including the mother demon herself, Lilith. But though demons were considered to be a part of all the darker aspects of the world, they were a force of nature. They were the entity within the storm, responsible for plagues, jealousy, fear, and earthquakes, basically any of the archetypal fears that human beings have. They were the embodiments. They were not necessarily seen as individual identities in many ways, but as aspects of the world and humans. They were of a fundamental primordial nature. And I know that when we think of the term demonology, the versions that spawn from the Abrahamic religions pop into mind. But the majority of demons from these pantheons are actually pagan in origin. Not all of them. There are some unique ones in there. But for the most part, they come from totally unique cultures separate from the Abrahamic religions. They were later just absorbed into their demonology. The Bible and later Christianity and even more demonologies is a stitched together hodgepodge of old monsters into new ones. Demons are often depicted as a mixture of animals and humans, which do seem monstrous but if you read the accurate depiction of the angels in the Bible, demons are actually depicted as far less alien. They are more a corruption of things we already know. Whereas angels are so alien, it's psychedelic to try and think about them. But we also find that in demons, their bestial nature is often analogous to deeply archetypal subconscious fears, both within and without. However, as I said, the majority of these demons have actually been with humanity for eons before any of the Abrahamic religions. And despite their evil nature, they still had their place in the world for the ancient humans. For example, if you look at Pazuzu, the demon most well known from the movie The Exorcist, but Pazuzu is of Assyrian origin. He's the king of the wind spirits. He's a personification of the west wind, and he held kingship over the Lilu demons lesser wind demons. He is the lord of destructive and dangerous wind, as well as a bringer of plagues. But he could also bring the wind that farmers needed for their crops. 
So despite his chaotic nature, there is still good that could come from Pazuzu. He was a well-known repellent to other demons that could be even more hazardous, and Pazuzu could be used to safeguard a home from the influence of other demons. Pazuzu was particularly protective of women, mothers, and pregnant women, and happy to defend them from the demon Lamashtu, his hated rival. So this terrifying demon was also a domestic protector deity, which is extremely bizarre to think about. But this mixture of demons having useful qualities, as well as being embodiments of evil, did not sit well with the ancient Hebrews because of their strict monotheism. There had to be a more black and white view for them. But also at the same time, how could God, who is solely good, create evil? If demons were part of creation, then how could a solely good God have created something that is evil? Remember that Bible verse I quoted earlier? And that was from earlier versions of scripture that did not gel well with what came later. Because even if demons chose their own path through free will, God is omnipotent and would know the outcome of everything and would know exactly what would come from any and all creations. So, even before he created anyone or gave them free will or anything, he would know exactly if they were evil or not and what they would do, as well as all of the people that their evil would hurt. So the paradox of God creating evil is unavoidable. This was a logically accepted truth to earlier generations before their Babylonian exile. But after their time spent exiled in Babylon, the Hebrews mixed with their saviors, they really did try desperately to keep their own beliefs, don't get me wrong, they tried probably harder than anyone else in history has ever tried harder to keep their own culture and beliefs separate from the cultures around them once they were solidified. But some things are unavoidable. And they mixed a lot with Babylon, but mostly mixed a lot with their Persian saviors, who believed in a religion called Zoroastrianism, which some believe gave them the answer to God creating evil. And that is that in Zoroastrianism, there are two gods of dualism, where good originates from one and evil originates from the other. The evil god is Araman, what some say is a prototype for the later Satan. It eased the question of God creating evil because now all evil in the world could be identified with an entity that is not God. But this still doesn't answer the paradox. The paradox and the problem is known by theologians as theodicy, and this problem still exists today. But it is around this time that more and more of the evil in the world becomes blamed on sources not of God, but of a dualistic enemy corrupting the work of God. This idea changed demonology forever in the Abrahamic religions. You see, originally Satan was just the adversary and actually worked for God and is even found in heaven in the scripture and whatnot. He was an agent of God in earlier scripture and didn't turn into the dualistic enemy and the source of all evil until later writers. And I could go into Samyaza and Azazel and the source of demons from all that stuff in the apocryphal texts, but I've covered that to exhaustion in my episodes on the Nephilim. Go check them out if you're interested because you can find a lot of good stuff there. 
The story of Samyaza and the Watchers is essentially the original Lucifer story and is far older than the Book of Revelation, which is similar to it and would become much more famous, but you can see the influence. However, what's really interesting in comparison between the two is that the fall, quote-unquote, in the apocryphal texts takes place during the time of humanity, whereas in the Book of Revelation, it's depicted to take place before humanity. There are even eras that God ordained the priests of Judaism to make sacrifices to demons. And yes, I'm not joking. On the Day of Atonement, God commanded that a sacrifice be made to placate the dangerous prince of this world, who is called Azazel, the entity straight from the books of Enoch. Weird, right? I bet you weren't expecting that. Why would God tell people to sacrifice to a demon? But prince also means a type of angel, so obviously this is a fallen angel. So there's that as well to analyze. But this kind of confusing stuff has led demonologists for ages to suggest many of the famous demonic names associated with individual demons could just be manifestations of a singular evil. And that way it makes the demonology easier to maintain and categorize. Because it's like throughout all of it, there's so many kings and rulers of hell, you know, depending on what era you're in. How could all these demons all be king of hell or prince of hell, ruler of hell, king of the demons? Like there's so many doesn't make sense. Not like this is supposed to make sense in the first place, but you get my point. Anyway, Azazel actually originates from Canaanite faiths, but became far more famous in its Abrahamic depictions. The El in Azazel's name means he is of the Elohim, the sons of God. El being the ancient name for God that was the common name for God in the area back in the day, which, um, you know, the Canaanites had huge influence on the Hebrews. Much to the embarrassment of later Jews and Christians because of the polytheistic origins of these names and entities. Because according to the original ways these terms and names were used, the Elohim would be gods themselves and not mere angels or servants. And Azazel would be a part of the divine pantheon. Like Azazel would have been a god and not a demon. El in the names is the remnant of the ancient past when the supreme god El had many children gods that would evolve later to become archangels like Michael and the fallen angels like Samael or Azazel. But why would God command humans to sacrifice to Azazel? The ritual of the scapegoat was symbolically meant to put the sins of Israel onto a goat being sacrificed, but it still doesn't make much sense unless you know the lore behind Azazel, and that much of human knowledge was actually taught to humanity by this demon. So, he's kind of a Prometheus figure in a way. Could it be that humanity owes Azazel some kind of debt, and God is making sure that his son has his due and his acknowledgement, despite being one of the dark forces of the universe? Or could it be the sin of the knowledge gained from Azazel forever links humanity to this entity. Personally, I have no idea, but it's interesting to think about. And God absolutely did command the Hebrews to sacrifice in Azazel's name on the Day of Atonement each year. And interestingly enough, Azazel is where the imagery of the horned goat man demon comes from. And Azazel 
the half man, half goat demon is pretty much, um, yeah, it's a prototype demon for demon, demonic imagery, I guess. Some people do try to say that Baphomet is the source of the goat demon imagery, but that's incorrect. The Baphomet goat demon imagery didn't even exist until Elphias Levy depicted Baphomet that way in the 1800s. I mean, it could also come from Pan and the nymphs and stuff, not the nymphs, um, satyrs, but those all also share similar origins. A lot of people today will say that the origin of the whole humanoid goat demonic imagery comes from legends like Pan from Greece or the Celtic myths of creatures who appear the same way, etc. And, and saying that they aren't actually necessarily wrong, I guess. But those people usually don't know about Azazel mythology and the ritual of the scapegoat. In truth, it's probably a mixture of all this stuff uh, from many, like uh, hybrid type monsters throughout many ancient cultures. But in my opinion, the modern demon imagery definitely does not come from Baphomet. I'm sure of that. However, all this stuff came later anyway. All this stuff that we're more familiar with concerning demonology actually came later and is more of an amalgamation of many different demonological sources with Sumeria being one of the main sources of a lot of where these entities came from. It is from Mesopotamia that many of our demons in western civilization originate and we'll hop into the Sumerian stuff after a quick break. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. there thanks for listening to cryptic chronicles the show is sponsored by blueberry and if you're interested in starting your own podcast use our link we'll even give your podcast a shout out go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the blueberry link on the homepage. by doing so you'll be helping the show blueberry is optimized for itunes as well as all podcast hubs you won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees in fact 
you won't have to leave your own website. You'll have your own RSS feed and no third-party sites. Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show. But most of all, thanks for listening. Ancient Mesopotamia was one of the most interesting times to be alive. It was an era where humanity was experiencing a profound paradigm shift. Normally nomadic people from all over the world were coming together into cities, leaving the wild behind. Because once cities became a thing, it was kind of not suicidal, but if you didn't have a group anymore, you were pretty much screwed. And with such a vast amount of people all coming together in a cultural mixing pot, they brought their entities with them. New power structures and hierarchies led to the formalized organization of acknowledged deities, spirits, and demons. Archaic forms of medical schools were created, and oddly, in ancient Sumeria, demonology and medical professionals were basically the same professions. There are countless archaeological finds that show people of ancient times had holes drilled in their head which doesn't make sense unless you understand Mesopotamian demonology. According to many demonologists, like Ed Simon, there were many things about reality that is truth, but not fact. There is a space in between, in the ineffable, that most people encounter at least once in their lives, and reason, facts, have no meaning. The scientific method has its limits, and there is far more outside of it than what can be measured within it. So it doesn't matter what we in modern times may think, because these demons were very real and a, an objective aspect of daily life for people who lived in ancient Mesopotamia. And the expertise of the Sumerian demonologists would trickle down to influence all the cultures of the Near East, including the ones that we're more familiar with. So in Mesopotamia, we are talking about everyday demons here, as common as the wind. And these demons and other deities were rooted deep in the psyche of Mesopotamians, with even normal, everyday people knowing a plethora of different rituals to protect themselves and others. If you have any stake in the work of Carl Jung, then you may entertain the idea of a collective unconscious humanity all shares from generation to generation, with these demons still running around in our collective unconscious to this day. Genetic memory could also be a link to generational demonic influence we're just not aware of, but the point is that even back then, these ancient Mesopotamians were not separate from us as we may think they are, and their beliefs played a huge role in the world that we live in today. To the ancient Mesopotamians, the lines between good and evil were often blurry and not straightforward, black and white. There was a lot more gray area because a lot of these evils were used to fight other evils. 
and evil itself was seen as a natural aspect of the world, like a force of nature, and not something to dig a hole in the sand and stick your head inside about. It was something that had to be faced and overcome, and other forces of evil were one of the ways to do that. So their myths and stories were not like ours, with a focus on the good guys win over the bad guy kind of story. Because if you look at their tales, very few of the heroes could actually be thought of as good people. Mitch, uh, that's, there's a lot in common with that in Greek myth as well. The Mesopotamian ideas of good and evil were very different than ours. Their brutal world required brutal solutions. So things of the demonic were not as taboo to them. After all, like I said, back then, your medical doctor would be equally a demonologist. And the way that people would become infected with these demonic afflictions is through possession. And people could be possessed by many demons all at the same time. There was no limit to how many demons could be oppressing someone. Possession could occur in countless different ways as well. From just being born with a demonic entity's influence through the bloodline or some other esoteric means to a plethora of others, but through also just going to the toilet at the wrong time at the wrong place anything in daily life could expose someone in ancient Mesopotamia to the demonic the Babylonian Talmud repeatedly warns of the shed beta kishi the toilet demons classified as one of the sulak or lurker demons lurker demons specifically hide and wait for people to be alone and at their most vulnerable to do their thing. The shed bed Kishi specifically lurked near bathrooms and could infect humans with a variety of ailments. And the dirtier the toilet area, the stronger the demonic influence. So it was a good idea to get the hell out of there as fast as possible or not use dirty toilets at all and very much try not to be alone near toilets. This is actually an ancient form of being sanitary and people not getting sick but they had no idea back then. This is uh, just kind of a coincidence. The Middle Ages could have totally used this mindset considering how much filth like this is responsible for disease and health issues and whatnot. So even just going to the bathroom could be an opening for possession to the Mesopotamians. Only the gods could command the demons, but the demons could also be sympathetic, not sympathetic, um... Humans could influence demons in interesting ways, and humans were also vulnerable to demonic possession for very interesting reasons, all things concerned. You see, in Mesopotamia, we have the oldest known origin myths of the world. You can even find the Garden of Eden story that's more famous in the Bible, but it's also found in Mesopotamian mythology. It's just different, and it's from these most ancient of ancient myths. That we get the human-demon connection and why humanity is so susceptible to demonic influence as well as being able to influence demons. Near the dawn of existence, the primordial entity Tiamat became enraged at the gods because they slew her husband, the other primordial god of source, Abzu. Tiamat created an army of demons to help her in her war against the gods, and the commander of this army of demons was Kingu the demonic overlord of the infernal host. He was the general of her armies and almost brought heaven to its knees, with the host of gods fleeing before the might of his armies. Kingu became an arch-nemesis to the Anunnaki, 
hated and reviled as the enemy of enemies, and his demonic armies were seemingly undefeatable. However, in the end, Tiamat failed in her war, but the gods did something very interesting with Kingu. The demon general and consort of Tiamat was to have a grim fate, but still be of use to the gods. After all, the chaos god Tiamat did use a lot of her power to create Kingu, so it would be wasteful not to use him in some way. Kingu was slain in captivity, and his blood was used to animate humanity. That's right. According to this myth, our blood is the blood of a demon king. So humans actually have a natural kinship with demons as blood relatives. Bizarre, right? This is just one of many myths concerning the war in heaven from ancient Mesopotamia, but it's a fascinating one concerning the relationship between humans and the demonic. The blood that runs through our veins was the blood of their original ruler, the original demon king. In a way, they are distant family members to humans, according to the Enuma Elish. And this is also why the gods secretly feared humanity, because of the inevitable return of the Chaos Gods, which were intrinsically part of reality itself and therefore could never be able to be truly slain. Even today, Tiamat is all around us. But the point is that humans are children of chaos, and chaos can never be stopped, just manipulated at times because chaos itself is part of the order of existence. And in a special part of these myths, there's the Tablet of Destinies. The Tablet of Destinies was only held by the ruler of the gods, and basically told everything that was, and was yet to come, and what is. It's a cheat sheet for knowing everything. The wielder was given the divine status as ruler of the universe, but the thing in it that kind of unsettled the gods was the suggestion of the old ones, the primordial gods of chaos. It was inevitable that they would one day return. And this return would put humans in an awkward situation. That I'll leave to your imagination. You can see how this is one of the baffling aspects of demonology that most civilizations have moved away from. No, not entirely. To me, it is definitely one of the most interesting Mesopotamian creation myths because it goes so against the grain compared to what we're used to in like the Abrahamic religions and whatnot. People in the proto-literate era were under extreme pressure as humanity had to adapt to new forms of living among cities and towns and the like. Even today in modern times, there is still this cultural disconnect between people who live in heavily populated areas and those who live on the fringe, those who live out in nature, scenic, loving people. Even after thousands of years, humans are not fully adjusted yet, with our more primal aspects coming to the surface pretty quickly when certain conditions are met. And it is within this primal side of humanity that the demons of the old world still reside, pulling strings to the oblivious as if they are marionettes. If this statement is confusing, it's along the lines of what I said earlier in that it doesn't matter if demons are real or not, because their influence mirrors all aspects of reality and the human condition. Our myths and folklore are just a way of giving what's already there a form that our conscious minds can comprehend. But even all that should not be taken literally because demonology inherently doesn't make sense. 
and is beyond any empirical validation. It is, however, a way that humans have learned about themselves, the universe, and the dangers of the world. A lot of uh, demonology in ancient Mesopotamia was very practical and kept people safe from harm in a variety of ways, like the folklore of medieval times. A lot of the stories had morals and warnings in them that if heeded, one was likely to live a lot longer. As an example, what I said earlier about the toilet demon, which is a very good idea to heed the lore surrounding those demons because it actually did benefit people's physical health. And in early Mesopotamia, when humans were learning to live in civilized cities, a lot of the themes concerning the duality of the wild and civility were written, such as the oldest epic written ever, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was a king that wasn't doing a great job, and his people called out to the gods who then sent Enkidu to tame Gilgamesh, and this duality of wild and tame contrast each other throughout the tale. And it shows a lot of how the Sumerians viewed the world, or the Babylonians. The realm of the Sumerians often depicted iconography of this duality. And some of our earliest archaeological finds concerning man-animal hybrid imagery come from Sumeria. You see, Mesopotamia was an entire region of the Near East. It wasn't a civilization. It wasn't a kingdom. It wasn't an empire. It was a region that many civilizations shared. And they shared a lot culturally, too. There was Sumeria, Akkad, Assyria, Babylon, and others. But those were the big boys. And um, my point is just that many civilizations made up what we refer to as Mesopotamia. But Sumeria was the oldest. The most ancient. Like the rest of Mesopotamia, the Sumerians believed that demons had positive as well as negative qualities and the human-animal hybrids were sent by the gods to interact with humans on Earth as intermediaries, just like Enkidu in the Gilgamesh epic. When trying to understand the influence evil entities like demons have had on human culture, it's important to recognize the word demon originating from the Greek word daemon, or daimon, which originally was not to be considered holy or inherently evil. It represents a divine force. And I don't mean divine in the Abrahamic sense, I mean divine as in beyond humanity from higher forces, as Heather Lynn puts it so eloquently in her book, Evil Archaeology. And I'm not saying this is or is not how demons are. Don't get me wrong. This is just how the Sumerians viewed demons. The Greeks shared the Sumerian view of demons, which is in stark contrast to the Western view we've inherited in modern times. Daemons, spelled D-A-E-M-O-N-S to the Greeks, were just between spirits, not of earth, but also not of heaven, or the gods. The entities were not seen as purely evil, but definitely capable of evil, especially the second form of them. Daemons had many different ways of conducting themselves. Some would watch humans and document them, going back to the gods to tell them what they'd witnessed or if certain people deserved to be honored by the gods or certain people deserved to be punished by the gods, the demons were, or the demons, I mean, were the ones who were communicating that. Some demons were born every time a noble person or hero died, and the demons were semi-divine spirits, and each and every human had their own personal daemon 
analogous to a guardian angel. One thing you can invest in that does not lose value is gold and silver. There is no better place to go for financial security than GoldCo. Rated A-plus by the Better Business Bureau. Get the free 2023 Gold IRA Kit Americans are using to protect their retirement savings. Get your free 2023 Gold IRA Kit at goldcogoldkit.com. GoldCo is a leader in the precious metals industry. From precious metals IRA to direct purchases of precious metal coins and bars, we partner with individuals seeking to diversify and safely grow their retirement portfolios. Allow Gold Co. to make your gold and silver investments easy, seamless, and secure. Our investment is in good hands. Chuck Norris, what? Oh, I'm recording. $30 off weed with code podcast? Did someone say $30 off weed with code podcast? Amuse delivers over 500 high-quality cannabis products from the Bay Area brands you love at everyday low prices. You can also rest assured that everything will be up to your high standards. So what are you waiting for? Start shopping now at Amuse.com. Use promo code PODCAST to save 30 bucks off your next order. That's A-M-U-S-E dot com. Is your brain always hungry? Do you have a mental appetite that often goes unsated? You may be suffering from hungry brain syndrome, a debilitating and sometimes life-threatening condition experienced by humans who require double, sometimes even quadruple, the amount of mental nutrition needed to sustain the general population. But now there's help. For years, our dedicated team of world-class researchers have been developing a thicker, more nutrient-dense podcast specifically for sufferers of hungry brain syndrome. And now we want to share it with you. All you have to do is search for our podcast, The Whole Rabbit, in your podcast player of choice and select from one of our delicious flavors like Slovenian succubi, Gnosticism, or Ancient Egypt. It's no wonder The Whole Rabbit is the most recommended treatment for hungry brain syndrome on the market. So what are you waiting for? Try The Whole Rabbit today. Do not listen while deep sea diving. Side effects may include eating carrots and shooting lasers. And continuing the lore surrounding the Greek daemon, they actually owe their existence to the titan Cronus, who ruled over the universe before Zeus, also known as Kronos, the god of time, or Saturn. There were different versions of the creation mythology in Greek mythology, and in one of them, Cronus created the first race of men called the Golden Race. These first men were still mortal, but lived similarly to the gods and even interacted with the gods regularly. These humans could be considered superhuman and lived a life free of strife and suffering. They were incredibly noble and had the highest wisdom. And when these proto-humans died, they turned into a golden daemon and continued their existence on earth, enjoying its blessings and watching over the new humans as they lived their mortal lives. They basically were earthbound spirits. However, when Zeus dethroned Cronus, the golden age of the daemons came to an end. The golden daemons were replaced by their inferior silver daemons. Though they were only replaced in the hierarchy of the social order of the divine, the golden daemons still exist to this day. They're just <laughs> separate from the order of things, I guess. But um, 
The silver daemons lacked many of the qualities that the golden daemons had, being just as capable of evil as well as nobility. The new daemons were split into two categories, benevolent agathodaemons and the malevolent cacodaemons that are known as cacodaemons in demonology. Homer equated daemons to the gods, and many Greek philosophers attributed their own ideas to their own personal daemon, or genius, as it was also known. Later writers gave a different nuance and even definition to the word daemon, such as it being an aspect of yourself or a part of yourself that's separate but still a part of you. Similar to the holy guardian angel from occult lore, but the close relationship between demons and the gods was never completely lost from sight. In the thinkers of the Middle Platonism, the identification of demons with the gods was revived, and this equation is present in Christian authors as well to a degree, though more in the duality aspect, where they represent the dark side of the divine, the yin to the yang, the yang to the yin, etc. When the Roman Empire adopted Christianity, and kind of took over Roman culture and Greek traditions, they totally absorbed the Greek word daemon, changing it to demon, and basically summing up all these spirits that uh, were outside of their little, their dogma, um, as malevolent cacodemons. The agathodemons and the golden demons were totally left out of all the Christian lore early on, and so were left out actually throughout the rest of their history, Although some people say that angels took their place, the angels became the golden demons. But knowing what we know about the original meaning of the Elohim, I'd say that's debatable. Another aspect of demonology that goes deeper and takes a little bit more dedication to come across. So most people interested in the surface knowledge of the subject never really get there or are capable of understanding the ideas in general for the most part. And this has to do with the ideas from Carl Jung and the work of Julian Jaynes. And it concerns the elusive collective unconscious that all humanity shares, according to Carl Jung and many other great minds. And it's far more than a subconscious ocean, but actually holds inner worlds far vaster than our waking lives. In Julian Jaynes' book, The Origin of Consciousness, The Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, we are presented with theories concerning the evolution of human consciousness that are quite fascinating. Jane says that there was a point in human development where we actually had little awareness, or self-awareness I guess, or ego, and were more primal, and still in the quote-unquote Garden of Eden. It was a time in human development when the gods and deities and entities literally existed within our consciousness talking directly to us and our minds hallucinating their visage before us. Though mostly auditory hallucinations, but visual hallucinations were a part of it too. Jane says that this is what was going on in the classical epics of Greece and whatnot, when the heroes and characters were literally talking to gods and interacting with them. This is what was going on. And according to Jane's work, these gods were the other half of our brains. We did not have real consciousness yet. We were little more than playthings of these archetypes and, well, even demons. When our consciousness more fully developed, these two halves were united and our ego self was born like how humans are now. And I know what you might be thinking. 
Well, that's lame. That just means gods and demons are just figments of our imagination. But if you think about it, everything is a figment of our imagination. Your entire life literally is a hallucination in your mind, and nothing exists outside the mind. And I'm not getting esoteric here, this is neuroscience. But you can think about like the Matrix if you want, like when uh, Morpheus is talking to Neo, um, you know, saying that reality is just electric impulses in your brain, which is very true. And these demons and gods and deities that were with us in the past actually did not go anywhere. Our consciousness developed and we moved forward in our quote-unquote evolution, but they still exist within the inner worlds. The world of the collective unconscious that we are all a part of equally as humans. And with this psychological Jungian outlook, these entities still can even be connected to hypothetically and can manifest themselves as a visual hallucination, just as real as anything else in your mind. Just as real as how your mind is hallucinating the world around you at this very moment. Equally able to influence as if they might as well be real flesh and blood standing in front of you. Freaky, right? All the gods, deities, entities, and demons are bouncing around in the collective unconscious and are technically inside you. The mental plane both within and without. The archetypes especially pull humanity's strings to varying degrees, but the demons are in there too, waiting to come back to the surface as they did in ancient times. Interesting to think about, right? Makes the Greek daimons and gods a lot more abstract, and with many of these once gods devolving into various archetypal forces within us. It's interesting to think about that humanity has like a collective gestalt consciousness, and if you really think about it, I'd say that there's a lot of truth to it, personally. I could give you some examples of why I think that, but that would go into a totally different topic. But these Greeks definitely knew a thing or two. And we will absolutely be coming back to Greek demonology in a future episode about uh, Goetic stuff, because we'll have to go over the Goetia. The Greeks gave us tons of demonological cultural influence, also pagan. Germanic folklore played a huge part in influencing Western demonology, so I'll have to figure out how to squeeze that in at some point in the future. But just like the gods of Olympus, all the old world gods would descend from their divine status with the rise of Christianity. Early modern demonology is directly linked to this transitional period, where the gods were slowly ripped down and named as demons to the new and powerful world religion. I mean, there are countless stories of this, but many times someone grew up worshipping the old gods, only to abandon them for Christianity at some point before their death and vilifying the original gods as nothing more than demons. The nuance found in earlier human civilizations was shifting to a black and white worldview. The era of the conversion of demons was a very real thing. It has been chronicled in apocryphal texts like the battle between the two apostles and a magician backed by the evil Roman Emperor Nero. Peter and Paul battled the magician Simon the Magus in an epic clash where Simon summons demons, levitates, and travels through the air in a fiery chariot. Simon the Magus is said in Christian accounts to be the founder of the heretical sect of Christianity known as Gnostics, which is complete BS. 
But this is some potent ancient propaganda we're looking at here. The story was used as a blunt tool of oppression to non-believers, but this is expected concerning the times, so I'm not trying to demonize it, just being objective. Gnostics were never one unified group, and they existed before Christ. But they are one of the, a group of Gnostics are one of the earliest forms of Christianity. That's absolutely true. But their ideas didn't go along with the Roman Empire ideas of having total dominance and power over people. Hence the demonization. But the Simon the Magus tale is fascinating demonological stuff because he's actually seen as the precursor to the Faust legend. Faust is the classical story of making a deal with the devil most of us are pretty familiar with. And this became pretty famous during medieval times and the Renaissance. And there would be tons of copycat Faust tales of selling your soul to the devil for power or fame. Or basically just something you really want badly. Talent even. Like the more modern day Faust tales of making a deal with devils to become a famous musician and stuff like that. Making a deal at the crossroads. However, what's left out a lot is that Simon the Magus was a full-blown Christian and challenged the notion that Christ's church should be used for political power over the masses, seeing miracles and magic much the same thing and thinking many early Christians to be hypocrites. He didn't see Christianity as a tool for power, unlike the coming Romans that would embrace the religion and... Yeah. If you have never read Jesus Wars, you totally should. It's a great book that documents 1500 years of Christian-on-Christian -Christian warfare. And fighting over like the most minute, tiniest disagreements about scripture and theology. We're talking Christian on Christian genocide, even at some points here. And over the tiniest differences in ideas. Despite all the massive good and light Christianity brought to the world, which is true. I'm not trying to diss on it. But there will always be that shadow that it can't escape from too. And that's okay. In fact, it's healthy to acknowledge and integrate, even for the most devout Christian, in my opinion at least. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and pretty much everybody behaved badly in history. It's just human nature. But it is early stories like Simon the Magus that helped mold modern demonology into something more recognizable to our modern eyes. As Christianity spread across the Roman Empire, the old gods were dragged down and... Then with the fall of the Western Roman Empire, the Dark Ages began and shrouded Europe in an umber for the next 300 years, give or take. And since we know so little about the Dark Ages, we can assume it was more of mishmashing, rampaging tribes across Europe, spreading their own demonic folklore with the local Christians, specifically the Germanic tribes. It isn't until the official start of the medieval times in the year 800 that demonology starts to show up in history again. And one of the most interesting demonologists of medieval times came from Constantinople in the Byzantine Empire. He was a monk and probably the greatest mind or thinker of his age, Michael Selos. He was a political advisor, theologian, and chief of philosophers at the University of Constantinople. But despite all that, especially being a monk... Michael Sellos said to others that he was a practitioner of theurgy, the art of summoning ancient spirits. He's the one who wrote one of the most classic, famous books 
on the operation of demons. And despite him being a part of the clergy and a legit monk, a theme often found in medieval times among professional Christians, there are a plethora of accounts concerning medieval monks being practitioners of theurgy and the authors of many demonic grimoires. But what made On the Operation of Demons unique is that it is arguably one of the first to have descriptions and guides to individual demons. It was not the first to have a list of demons because of the Testament of Solomon, Kabbalistic works, and Enochian literature, as well as various others. But where Michael Sellos is unique is that he created a systemized classification. It was the first kind of academic style on the nature of demons, categorizing demons. And this academic style of categorization would really catch on because it would become the norm rather than the exception in the centuries to come, which was both good and bad for later demonologists. Good because there was more of a focus on consistency and peer-reviewed work on the topic, and bad because demons could actually not be defined rationally and often did not fit the mold made for them by those who actually dug deep and were not just armchair demonologists. I plan to go deeper into the Testament of Solomon in a later episode because it's really juicy and also one of the most legit and ancient demonological documents being mostly written in the first millennium. There is older stuff, obviously, but the Testament of Solomon had a massive influence on the evolution of Western esotericism. On the operation of demons is the text that brought into focus another theme that is consistently found in the history of demonology. And that is that knowing the demon's true name, or names in general, actually gives someone a level of influence over the entity, if not outright submission in some cases. But there is more than just one thing that it has in common with the Testament of Solomon, and that's the focus on hierarchies and ranks among the infernal entities. Richard Kikofer writes in his book, A Necromancer's Manual that theologians as well as necromancers believed that demons held various ranks in a kind of hierarchy that parodied that of God's heavenly courts. He goes on to talk about how trying to apply a scientific categorization became a part of mainstream theological tradition, as well as uh, with that uh, tradition in demonology. And this tradition would continue throughout the Middle Ages as Ed Simon says in his book, Pandemonium, on the operation of demons distinguished demons into six different categories. The Laluria, who occupy space beyond the stars, very Lovecraftian. The Area, who live in our atmosphere. The Catonia, who dwell on the land. The Hydea, who live within the water. The Hypocathonia, who live within the earth. And then the lowest of devils, the Misophase who inhabit hell, and which Jeffrey Burton Russell describes in his book Lucifer, the devil in the Middle Ages as beings who hate the light and dwell blind and almost senseless. The following compilations of demons that would form into demonological texts would be different in metaphysics, how demons worked concerning if they um, could be physically present or were they just spiritually present. 
The idea that demons could be defined and objectively detailed became a part of Western demonology. This evolution of demonology was in stark contrast to the more ineffable and nuanced nature of demons in the classical age, and the artists of the Middle Ages went wild with their imaginations when depicting demons, and despite the utter dominance of Christianity in the West. The influence of Judaism on Western demonology is undeniable. However, it's interesting to note that uh, Jewish demonology actually doesn't change too much even through the Classical Age, Dark Ages, and Medieval Times, and the Renaissance. It was heavily influenced, like I've already said, but it mostly stays pretty consistent. Jewish demonology only got more intricate and interesting during Medieval Times, and it is during these times that we get the real deal Kabbalah and Sephirot. The Sephirot is many different things at once. But in our context, it is a map of existence, specifically the spiritual realms. The opposite of the Sephirot is the Cliffith, which is the shadow of the Sephirot and the realms of unpure or evil spiritual forces. And with the Cliffith, we get the pretty much get a whole pantheon of demons. And if you really want to get confusing, these spheres of dimensions that make up the Sephirot and the Cliffith also exist in humanity, in our sphere of awareness, or our aura, I guess, but invisible other than two spiritual eyes. So again, from a certain point of view, these demons already exist inside of us as well as outside of us, and yes, it is confusing. You could spend your whole life studying Kabbalah and still not understand it on your deathbed, so don't worry about it too much. There are also countless interpretations, not only in Judaism, but outside it too, such as the later Christian Kabbalah and Hermetic Kabbalah, and it is this Hermetic Kabbalah that has had a pretty big influence on Western occultism and demonology. However, these are still heresy, according to the Orthodox Catholic demonology, FYI. So, try and say this stuff to them, they're still going to be all like, everything is demons and evil, blah, blah, blah. that's outside of our little niche as well as being most likely heresy to the various Protestant branches in modern Christianity, which is why you will often see neo-Christians sticking their head in the sand about the topic of demonology. Dogma cuts deep and makes scars that won't heal. But not all neo-Christians are like this. Don't get me wrong. And then, of course, there is the rise of the third player in the Abrahamic religions, Islam. And the medieval Muslims had their own demonology to bring to the table, and it was uh, just like what came before. It was a mixture of the old and the new. Zakaria al-Khazvini wrote marvels of things and miraculous aspects of things existing, which was one of the most popular Near East texts that also contained demonology. Arabian folklore was thick and dense with material for their demonology, though they would still kind of do their own thing in many ways because they had to follow the tenets of Islam but they do have their own litanies of monsters, jinn, demons, and devils, easily able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Western demonology.
that's all for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed this first episode on demonology. Plenty more to come. And, um, yeah, supporters hit me up. Let me know what you want, uh, want me to cover next. I'm going through some hard times now. just got laid off. So the good thing about that is I can focus on making more Cryptic Chronicles stuff. But at the same time, got to keep the lights on, you know? Right now, you guys are, are keeping the website up and you're keeping all of my licensed, licensed music and stuff like that. So I really appreciate you. And if uh, you, dear listener, want to become a supporter and you happen to be awesome, for just a dollar, you can unlock full uncensored shows with no ads or anything like that. Be able to listen to episodes months before it's ever available to the public. You will get access to exclusive content and depending on the pledge, even do other awesome stuff like join the Discord chat or actually everyone can join the Discord who helps me out, who supports me. But you can do other awesome stuff like um, come on as a co-host if you want. Definitely point me towards the direction of the next content you want me to cover. Any topics, stuff like that. Just go to CryptoChronicles.com and at the top, click on the Chronicles Vault. Can't miss it. Uh, I also got Subscribestar, Patreon, or you could just uh, do it through PayPal. And yeah, really any way you can support the show would help me dramatically. Like, I really need it right now. Uh, if you could share the show on social media or with anybody else of your friends who are free thinkers, who are open-minded, interested in the mysteries of existence, please share this show with them. Comment where you can. Write me a positive review on any of the podcast hosts. Give me four stars or whatever. I don't know where, because I'm basically on all podcast hosts, so I don't really know how they all work. But anything you can do, I really need your help right now. Thank you. And as always, I'd like to thank my current patrons, MJ Calvo, Adrian, John, Celestial Weavers, Alien X, Lorna Grubb, Linda Gonzalez, Angela Delaire, Ashley, Brad Herbert, Lawrence Lee, Patricia Coles, Kayla, Max, Michael Worrell, Jimmy Woods, Grodius, Sophia Owens, Scott Wellman, Beware the Q, Ashley Thompson, Matt Poland, Johnny Wick, Yale Adams, Danny Van Heck, Carnage, Jesse Leach, Austin Monday, Michael Graham, Ed Hawks, Trusty Old Senpai, Lex Lazarus, Brian Nolan, Jared, Matthew Lawson, Jismuk, Space Coin, Gary Hetzel, Tom McClurney, Colton Spenner, Justin, Miyamoto Musashi, Jeremy Gross, Psychic Terror, Jacob, Neil McBride, Cameron Sanders, Robin Van Patten, and Ryan L. Thank you for supporting Cryptic Chronicles, but most of all, thanks for listening. And as the best writer who ever wrote anything once said, not all those who wander are lost. <laughs>